But if you would this morning, let's go back to the book of Philemon. Looks like we're going to finish out the book of Philemon today. And then I think next week, I think we're going to get into the book of Colossians. We'll go back one prison epistle and look at that. But I've really enjoyed Philemon. It's, I always say this, but I always mean it. The study has really helped me. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from these messages on forgiveness. Uh, you know, I often heard growing up that, you know, the hardest messages to preach is when you're, you know, blasting a particular type of sin. But on a personal level, I've never really found that to be the case. Um, it's, it's messages that really hit home where the rubber meets the road. It's, it's those heart issues that usually get us. And certainly I have I've dealt with these things myself as I've shared. But just by way of review, just to give you some context, uh, we've seen that Philemon was a wealthy uh, Christian man. He was a member of the church at Colossae. In fact, as we see here in the book of Philemon, the church was actually meeting in his house and Philemon had been led to Christ years earlier by the Apostle Paul. And Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, and we find this in this letter just how good of a man Philemon was. He was loving. He cared about other people. Uh, he was dedicated to his church. He was a good Christian man. And Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And as we, uh, as we took one sermon specifically to look at, uh, slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't anything like what it was in America. It was, obviously without going into much detail, it was much more like employment uh, than it was like slavery here. And we saw how the Bible would have very clearly condemned the kind of slavery that would have taken, taken place here in America and also in Britain. And so I, I don't want you to only hear that as we go through this. We've dealt with that. But Onesimus did have, I mean, excuse me, Philemon did have a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus had apparently stolen something of great value from Philemon, and he had fled. He'd run away. And of course, uh, that was very punishable by Roman law and also uh, by Jewish law. And so I imagine Onesimus began to think, oh no, what have I done? What's the next step? So he goes to the prison where the Apostle Paul is captive, and it seems that he sought Paul to be some kind of mediator between he and Philemon, knowing the kind of relationship that they had, and it's during this encounter that Onesimus comes to saving faith in Christ, and Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, uh, telling Philemon about his conversion and asking him not only to receive him as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, and it's actually Onesimus who brings this letter back to Philemon, and Understand, uh, understanding the character of Philemon, it's much more likely he treated Philemon like a son and he betrayed his trust and stole from him and fled. And un That would be understandably hurtful to somebody like Philemon. And so Paul asked to forgive him and to take him in. And over the past several weeks, we looked at the high cost of unforgiveness. We've looked at restoration. And then last week, we looked at reconciliation and today, we kind of sum everything up with the basis of our forgiveness, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is going to close this letter out uh, by showing us some gospel principles, the, the very motivation that we would have to even forgive somebody who's hurt us. Uh, 
And um, understand this too as I, I go along and mention this. What's interesting about Philemon, it's the only book that Paul wrote that doesn't have any specific doctrinal theology in it. There's no doctrine in it. But we see from the principles that uh, these doctrines that are playing out in the Christian life, it means something to be a Christian. It means something to live a gospel-centered life. And what's interesting is we don't see the words forgiveness or unforgiveness or bitterness or reconciliation, and yet it's right here in principle. We see it. Receive him as myself is what Paul asked Philemon to do. And so Paul gives some great examples of the heart of the gospel in these closing remarks. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our text. We'll begin in chapter, uh, in verse 17, excuse me. Uh, verse 17, he says, If thou count me therefore as a partner, Paul speaking to Philemon, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, talking about Onesimus, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand, I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord, Refresh my bowels in the Lord, having confidence in thy obedience. I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristocrus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for the cross of Christ and, God, what you went through to forgive us. Lord, not to sweep our sin under the rug, but to punish Christ for what we did. And I pray if there's somebody here that's not saved, they don't know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, then I pray that today would be the day that you bring them to a place of repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would just empty me of sin and self and fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, help me physically, Lord. Help my eyes that, Lord, they wouldn't be a distraction to me or anybody else. God, I just pray that Christ would be magnified. And if there's somebody here that is struggling with unforgiveness or bitterness, maybe they've buried it so deep and they've stayed away from those people for so long they don't even recognize it. They don't even realize what it's doing in their life. I pray that you would reveal it and set them free today. We give these things to you, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. <laughs> So we're preaching on the thought this morning of forgiveness, the heart of the gospel. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the basis or reason for forgiveness and reconciliation with those that have hurt us and done wrong? Why in the world would we want to do that? Somebody that's betrayed our trust, somebody that's hurt us, uh, somebody who has walked over us like a floor mat, treated us like dirt in spite of perhaps our goodness to them? Why would we even want to make that right? What sense does that even make? And the answer is very simple, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reason we ought to do it. And the reason is the gospel of Christ changes people. It changes hearts, and it puts a love for God and others inside of us that we never had before. And I mentioned this verse before, but it bears repeating as we wind down Philemon. But Ephesians 4 Verses 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And the three most important words that you could ever remember when it comes to forgiving someone else is for Christ's sake. You say, well, I can't forgive them because they're not going to change or they're not going to repent or that relationship will never be the same or I could never look past what they did. You don't have to for their sake, but you better for Christ's sake. You know, God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. And for Christ's sake, we ought to be able to forgive others. And as I mentioned, uh, and I don't want to rehash all this, that doesn't necessarily mean putting yourself in a dangerous or compromising situation. That's not what he's asking you. You can forgive them even if they are never going to change. Even if the relationship's never reconciled to any meaningful level, that's not what it's about. This is about your obedience to God. Now, we talk about the reason for forgiving. That's for Christ's sake. You know, the atheists, the humanists, they have no real basis for selfless love and the forgiveness of others. What reason does an atheist have to be selfless? I mean, the mantra of an honest atheist is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, survival of the fittest. I mean, I'm not saying that an atheist is incapable of being kind and loving, but they have no reason for doing so. They have to borrow from the Christian worldview to do that. See, we have a reason. Because even lost people are created in the image of God. That gives them automatic value. And for those that are saved, brothers and sisters in Christ, my goodness, if we can't get along with one another, what hope does the world have? And so we have a reason. Now, if we as children of God, if we're going to go through this life with hatred and bitterness in our heart toward others, we're living like practical atheists. We're not living with a testimony for Jesus Christ. We're staining the name of Christ. When we, when we claim the name of Christ and we talk about the love of Christ on the cross and we talk about the gospel and how good it is to be saved, we're betraying all of those things if we're harboring bitterness and hatred toward those in our heart. It is, it is one big ball of hypocrisy. It doesn't make any sense. It causes confusion when we say one thing and do another. We're not consistently living uh, our biblical worldview when we do that because forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel. And even though Paul doesn't specifically mention the gospel here, just like we've seen these other principles, we definitely see gospel principles here. But how does Paul reveal forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel and how does he do it in this text? A few things here this morning and I'll be done. But number one, I believe we see the imputation of the gospel in this text. And I believe that Paul is, on, he is purposely presenting these things to Philemon in a way that he is not, you know, he's not being nearly as direct with Philemon as he was the Corinthians. You know, the Corinthians, they were just really fleshly. I mean, they had sin going on in their church. They had sexual immorality taking place among the members, and they just turned a blind eye to it. And Paul came out right out of the gate, guns blazing with him. He just said it like it was. He's being a lot more careful with how he deals with Philemon. And I, I think the reason is he knows that all he has to do is remind him of the love of Jesus Christ and his responsibility. And Philemon is going to do the right thing. But I believe you see here implied the imputation of the gospel. Look at verse 17. He says, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it 
albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. And so we see what a great illustration of imputation. Uh, Imputation simply means to charge to one's account. Imputation is an incredibly important doctrine in the Bible. It means to charge to one's account. And the important thing to remember here is Paul does not defend the innocence of Onesimus. In fact, quite the opposite. He admits his guilt. He, he implies that he's probably stolen from Philemon here. He simply says to Philemon, receive him as myself, and if he owes anything, I'll pay for it. In other words, Paul says, whatever he owes, whatever he's stolen, put it on my account. That's what imputation means. And this is exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. We owed a sin debt to God that we couldn't pay. Our sin was a legal offense against God. And Christ never tried to plead our innocence. He's, he's, God the Son has never gone to God the Father and said, Hey, this guy over here, he's, he's really a good guy. In fact, I think he's innocent. I, you know, I think we ought to just let him into heaven on the basis of what he does and who he is. That's never happened and it's never going to happen because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Christ has never tried to plead our innocence because He knows that we're guilty. Uh, But He paid the fine on our behalf. And for the child of God, uh, there's actually two kinds of imputation that takes place. It's really important. There's, first of all, our sins imputed to Christ on the cross, and then His righteousness imputed to us at the moment of salvation. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I believe, captures this exchange better than any single verse in the Bible. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He, talking about God the Father, He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, when Christ was on the cross, He took our sins upon Him God punished him for those sins. He punished Christ for the things we did. And then when somebody comes to Christ in salvation, Christ imputes his righteousness to us. The only reason that anybody can ever stand before a holy God is if they're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because I hope you understand, when it comes to the standard of God, usually when I'm witnessing to somebody... I'll ask this question. I said, do you really want to know what it takes to get to heaven? And of course, well, sure. Well, you know, what does it take to get to heaven? Because most people think they've done what it takes to get to heaven. And then, of course, I get to be the crusher of dreams. But I tell them, okay, you, you want to know how to get to heaven? Sure. You have to be absolutely 100% perfect. Well, then you almost hear the record scratch, and you can see the wheels turning, and how is that possible? Because God is ferociously holy and His standard is absolute perfection. Well, nobody's ever gotten there so that you, you take them to Christ. And so uh, He applies his, right, his imputed righteousness to us as His children. And because of the imputation of the cross, this is beautiful. God the Father treated Christ as if He had lived our sinful life. And because of that, He's able to treat us as if we had lived the sinless and perfect life of Jesus Christ. (laughs) What an exchange that is. Um, Romans 4 and verse 3 says, What saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That is, uh, to the account, to charge to the account, that is imputation. That is exactly what that is. 
And when we think about this um, gospel principle of imputation and how the innocent died in the place of the guilty in order to give us eternal life, how can we not forgive somebody? When we think about how much Christ has forgiven us for, how can we not forgive others who have offended and wronged us? Uh, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, we can't always, as I said, forgive for our own sake. That re- really wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. But we can forgive for the sake of Christ. And because of the gospel, we ought to be anxious to forgive as He has forgiven us. Uh, Proverbs 19 and verse 11, it says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. It's the glory of a wise man to pass over a transgression. That, that doesn't mean to sweep it under the rug. It doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that for Christ's sake, we must forgive. For, because forgiveness, as I said, is the very heart of the gospel, and it's seen in the principle of imputation. But the second thing that I want to talk about this morning, and we're going to spend the majority of the message on this right here, not only the imputation of the gospel, but I, see, I believe we see the imitation of the gospel in, in verse 20 here. Look at this. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord, having confidence in thy obedience. I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou will also do more than I say. Now, this is so important. The gospel does not just change our eternal destination. It changes us. And I'm going to say this. If the gospel doesn't change us, it's not going to change our destination either. Uh, It's not just um, about a, a one and done. And I'll talk about the one and done here in a minute. You can go ahead and jot that one down. But... 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man or any woman, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are come new, uh, are become new. Even in the Baptist church, I believe we're running rampant with this cheap grace gospel. Just one, two, three, say a prayer. You got your ticket punch, and you, you don't have to have any evidence of salvation. There don't have to be any fruit That is garbage. That's another Greek word that you can jot down. It's nonsense. And, you know, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody uh, that I grew up around or that mentored me. I'm thankful for every one of them. And even if there might have been some bad, I sure am thankful for the good, and I have not arrived myself. But if I was to just highlight a couple of things that later in life kind of bothered me about the way that the gospel was presented to me. And thank God that it was enough gospel that the Lord saved me through that. But, but looking back, there's two things that kind of disturbed me about the way that I heard the gospel presented on many occasions. And the, the first thing is that the cross was all about us. That's all I ever heard. The cross was all about us. It was all about saving sinners and you know, man, we just must be so valuable for, for Christ to come and want to die for us. Now listen, yes, the, the cross is the greatest example of God's love that's ever been seen toward mankind. There's no doubt about that. Christ came to save sinners, and aren't you glad about that, that Christ loves sinners even when we don't deserve it? But I'm here to tell you that that's not the main thing the cross was about. The cross was about the glory of God. 
There's also never been a greater thing in history to bring glory to God than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It brings glory to God when He saves sinners. So don't ever forget about that. If you make the cross all about us, you've turned the whole thing on its head. It starts, the cross starts with the glory of God. And John brings this out. We're going to get into that some next year, I think. But don't ever get that flip-flopped. Because if you begin to think that the cross was all about you, it'll take a lot of the power out of the cross in our estimation. We don't need to do that. But the, but the second thing that bothered me about the way the gospel was presented so many times is that the gospel was not only just about us, but it made it seem as if the gospel was all about staying out of hell. It was all about staying out of hell. You know, this, this close your eyes and bow your head, and you know, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. Well, you don't have to care a thing about God to want to stay out of hell. You don't have to have any desire to serve Christ or be saved from your sins, be saved from hell. Any fool knows that. That's a materialistic message. And yes, there's a heaven to gain, there's a hell to shun, and Christ does save us from hell. Thank you, Lord, for that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is about being saved from our sin and serving Jesus Christ, submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Hell, staying out of hell is just a benefit of that. And so I believe in many ways we've cheapened the gospel in those aspects. And the reason that I bring that up is because if we just think the gospel is all about us, and we just think the gospel is about staying out of hell, then so many people get this mentality of, uh, of the one and done. Here's the one and done. The one and done is when somebody once upon a time in their life raises their hand at the end of a service or or does a one, two, three, repeat after me prayer, and maybe they get a sign a card, or they join a church, or maybe they even hang around long enough to get baptized, and for the rest of their life, they're good. They're going to heaven, they're saved, and you know they hadn't been to church in 20 years. They've never shared the gospel with a single soul. Their mouth hadn't cleaned up. Their life hadn't changed. I mean, there ain't nothing different about them at all. That's not salvation. You say, well, Brother Brandon, you believe in a work salvation. Yeah, I do. The work of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then it goes on to say, For you are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, with he, which He has before ordained that we should walk in them. So you get saved unto good works. Your good works doesn't bring you unto salvation, but your salvation will bring you unto good works. So there's nothing there, folks. If there's no fruit, there's no root. I have no problem saying that. You know, if somebody knocked on your door, some total stranger, and they look like they're in a panic, and, and they say, please call an ambulance, call 911. You say, what happened to you? Well, I just got hit by an 18-wheeler going 100 miles an hour, and they don't have any broken bones and no visible bruises. You would say, I'll be right back. And you're going to call the police. You ain't calling no ambulance. Because you know that person's crazy, or they're lying, or both. It's the same thing. When somebody tells me they're a Christian and they live like a child of hell, I may not say it out loud, although I may, and that is liar, liar, pants on fire. And so uh, the gospel changes us. Uh, the gospel's for saved people, 
as much as it is for lost people. And forgiveness is a big part of that because forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. And Paul is reminding Philemon of who he is in Christ and why he should readily forgive Onesimus. Look at verse 9 really quick. Let's go back to verse 9. Paul says, Yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the age, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he is appealing to Philemon's love for Christ and people as the reason to forgive. And by the way, this is really important. And this is, this is one reason why I love studying through books, because I learn things that I didn't know. You see, I'm learn- I hope you understand, I learn things, and then I come here and teach you things. It's not like I'm just drawing from my infinite wealth and knowledge that I never have to study. It, it, I promise you it's not like that. And this is what I learned. I learned this this week. I did not know this. But, I mean, it's really common sense. I just, it just didn't click with me. But there's actually two reasons we know that Philemon forgave Onesimus. Even though it doesn't say so in the text, even though we don't know how the story ends, we know that Philemon forgave Onesimus. Anybody know what two reasons? No, you don't, because I didn't either. But the, the first one is this. The first reason we know is because of the existence of the letter itself. Now think about this. I've mentioned this, but it bears repeating. The early church realized they had to come up with a system to vet which letters were inspired by God and which ones weren't because you understand even the gospel writers, they wrote a whole lot more than what made it in this Bible. I mean, that was the regular method of communication back then. And then you had all these other people coming out with these letters saying that they were inspired by God, and they say, whoa, wait a second, how do we know what's a fake and what's really of God and, uh, and all that? So they came up with a fourfold test. And the test was this, number one, apostolic authorship. It had to be written by an apostle or close associate. That is the case with every New Testament letter that made it into the canon. The second thing is, is antiquity. Was it the right age? Was it written during the right time? If it was written too early or too late, it couldn't have been written by an apostle or a close associate. The, the third thing, and this is what concerns Philemon for us today, the third thing was acceptance. Was this letter or writing, was it widely circulated by the church? Was it widely accepted as inspired scripture? The fourth one, really quickly, and I'll come back, is accuracy. Did it line up doctrinally with the other letters or did it have blatant contradictions? But as far as the acceptance goes, listen, uh, Philemon, this, this letter obviously didn't just stay in Philemon's chest of drawers. I may have to interpret that later. Just ask me. But anyway, he didn't just put it in a safe place and leave it or we wouldn't have it today. This letter was circulated among the churches and I've got to believe that it started right there at the church of Colossae where he was at. What a testimony. Now listen, who does that if Philemon doesn't forgive Onesimus? What sense does that make? I mean, can you imagine the damage control that a pastor would have to do every time he preached out of this book? Now listen, I listen. I know Philemon didn't do this, and I know he messed up, and I know he died a bitter old man, but this is actually what we're supposed to do. <laughs> no. He's gonna, they're going to say... And we remember the beautiful story of how Philemon forgave Onesimus. What a testimony. What, what, I mean, what an event to see within that body of believers. And now we're blessed by it today. 
So we know by the very fact this letter exists and it's in our Bible, we know that Philemon had to forgive Onesimus. But there's a second clue, and this actually comes from church history. And now, I'm going to read you just a, a short statement from a letter that was written by one of the early church fathers, Ignatius. Now, Ignatius, he was martyred in 110 A.D., uh, which is about 50 years after the writing of Philemon. So 50 years. And Ignatius, let's just see who wrote this to. Uh, Ignatius says, I received your large congregation in the person of Onesimus, your bishop in this world, a man whose love is beyond words. And so now, in the, in the effort of transparency, I have to say that we do not know 100% if this was the same Onesimus, but given the time and the place, it's very likely that Onesimus went on to become the bishop of Ephesus after Timothy. Isn't that a thought? And I, I can't help but think here when I read this, it says a man whose love is beyond words. Is that not the same things that Paul said about Philemon in this letter? That's a pretty amazing thought to, to think if it really is that same Onesimus, how that story ended. <laughs> what, a, what a message, what a story of forgiveness. But here's the thing, and uh, I'm, I'm beginning to wind down here. When we, when we talk about the imitation of Christ, the, the forgiveness of Christ, Philemon wasn't the only one who had to practice forgiveness in this letter. Let's continue on here. Look at verse 22. He says, But with all prepare me a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. And this is really another message for the day, but I will say this. Paul lets Philemon know that he thinks he's about to get out of prison, and when he does, he wants to come visit him. Now, I don't know about you, I don't want the Apostle Paul coming to my house if I don't have my house in order. Imagine seeing Paul and not forgiving Onesimus. Well, the same thing is true of us, friend. Jesus is coming back one of these days. I want to have my house in order when he gets here. But I just wanted to throw that out there. The, this is really what I want to focus on in this uh, salutation here. Uh, verse 23, There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristocrus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now this is really important because as we read this list that Paul names, these fellow laborers in Christ, there's a few of them that really pop to me, a few of them that really stand out. The first one there in verse 24 is Marcus. Well, who is that? That's Mark. That's the gospel writer of Mark. What do you remember about Mark? Mark was a slacker at one time. Uh, in fact, he went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And he ended up leaving them, just left them high and dry. And then for the second missionary journey, when he wanted to go, Paul said, no, you ain't going, boy. I don't trust you. And, of course, that's probably Alabama vernacular. I don't think he said it like that. But that's what he meant. He, he would not let Mark go on that second missionary journey. And Barnabas disagreed with Paul. And there was such a, a sharp disagreement that uh, Barnabas had to take Mark one way and Paul took Silas another way and so they just had to go different places to minister the gospel. But what does Paul say at the very end of his life when he knows that his execution date is near? Uh, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, he said, Take Mark, talk, he's speaking of Timothy, 
Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. In other words, I'd like to see Mark before I die. He's been a blessing to me. He's been profitable to me in the ministry. There's been some reconciliation there, hasn't there? There's been some changes made. The relationship has been mended. He has earned the trust of Paul. But Paul had to be willing to forgive, didn't he? Paul had to be willing to make reconciliation. What's ironic is when he's writing these things to Philemon about forgiving, little does he know some of the people in this list he's bragging on is going to hurt him and break his heart. And guess what? He's going to have to practice what he's preaching right now. We're going to have to practice what's being preached here. But then... Not only, and, and here's another interesting footnote. Uh, when, when he says that Mark is profitable unto him for the ministry, the name Onesimus means profitable. I find that interesting. But there's another person in this list that really sticks out to me, and that is Demas. Now, we don't know a lot about Demas, but just one verse prior to what we just read in 1 Timothy 4, there in verse 10 is where we are now, He's speaking to Timothy, and he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. And so this very man, uh, this Demas in Philemon, that he calls a fellow laborer, sometime late in Paul's life when he needed him the most, when he's in prison awaiting to have his head cut off by Emperor Nero, in that moment, he forsook him for this present evil world. How do you think that made him feel? You think he had to find some forgiveness in his heart? You think he had to practice what he preached? Yeah, he sure did. And I'm sure that he did. Because Paul knows that forgiveness is the heart of the gospel. And we should forgive as Christ has forgiven us out of a heart of love. We have to imitate the love and forgiveness of Christ. That's a gospel principle, that Christians be Christ-like. I know that's novel. But lastly, and I'm done, I believe when we look at these gospel principles and we look at the reason we ought to forgive others, man, this is important, and that is the iconic nature of the gospel. And when I talk about iconic, I'm talking about Christ Himself. He is the symbol of forgiveness. He is the icon of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And without Christ, as I mentioned, we have no real reason to forgive. Certainly not a transcendent reason. Christ is absolute reference point for all these things. And this is perhaps illustrated no better than that of the conversion of Mitsuo Fujita. Don't ask me to say that too fast. Mitsuo Fujita. And uh, just to, I, I'm going to spend, I really want to spend time with the illustration. And when I'm done with the illustration, we're done. But to me, this is one of the most beautiful stories, true stories of forgiveness and salvation that I've ever seen. And it wasn't until this man saw the forgiveness of Christ that he became a Christian. But Fujita if his name sounds familiar, he was the fleet commander of the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was, in, he was the one in the sky, in the air, that was in command of the 349 planes that attacked Pearl Harbor. Just a military genius. He was brilliant. And he was handpicked to lead that mission. And Fujita, he had a really amazing life. I mean, uh, you know, from, from the attack on Pearl Harbor, but 
Um, he, was, he actually was shot down three times during the war, and he survived every time, twice in the ocean and once behind enemy lines. And in fact, that didn't get him. But then, if that wasn't bad enough, um, he was on a, an aircraft carrier at the Battle of Midway. And, of course, the Americans initiated that. They weren't really expecting it. And he, he had just had an appendectomy. He had his appendix taken out, which, of course, back then was much more severe than it is now. So, you know, he's, he's chilling in the bunk there in, in the boat on the aircraft carrier, and all of a sudden the Americans stop, start bombing him, the carrier that he's on, and the bomb falls right above him and blows him out the side of the ship into the ocean, broke both of his legs, and he still survived. And... Anyway, he gets through the war. Obviously, they lose the war. The Americans drop the atom bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and we know all that. But after the war, he goes back to his farm in Osaka. And he's just, obviously, man, he's just been traumatized by everything he's seen. He's seen more death than any of us can imagine. He's killed more people than people can imagine. And all he can think about is the horror of what he's seen. He has seen the depths of human depravity. And as he is out farming Osaka, he is consumed with the thought of finding peace. How, how can we find peace? How can nations find peace? And he was consumed by this pursuit of peace. And he decided to write a book about peace called No More Pearl Harbors. But he had one problem. He couldn't find a basis for peace and forgiveness in the world. How could, how could these nations who had hated one another and killed each other, how could they ever forgive one another, and how could there ever be peace in the world or on an individual level? And about that time, um, as he's pondering these things, he goes into town and he runs into one of his old military friends. Hadn't seen him in years because this particular friend uh, was in an American POW camp. And they got to talking, and one of the questions that... Fujita asked his friend, how were you treated in that POW camp? And he said, you know, he said, we were treated really well. In fact, there's one young lady that just, I'll never get over. He said, she used to come every day. She would bring us food. She would bring us clothing if we needed clothing. She made sure we were taken care of. She brought us medicine. She, she doctored us. And, and she was just amazing. And he said, one day, we all just wondered why this American girl was being so nice to these Japanese POWs. And her answer blew him away. And her answer was, because my parents were killed by the Japanese army. And, and they're like, what are you talking about? And she said, well, my parents were missionaries, Christian missionaries in the Philippines. And they were arrested by the Japanese government because they thought they were spies, American spies. They couldn't convince them otherwise, and they knew they were going to be executed by firing squad. And the parents made one request before they died. Give us 30 minutes to pray and read our Bible before you kill us. And so her parents were executed. She was so bitter about that, so angry. She hated the Japanese. She hated them. And then she began to think at night, I, you know, I wonder what my parents prayed about before they were executed. And she knew in her heart, knowing her parents, she had asked God to forgive them for what they were about to do. And she said, you know, if they can do that, then I ought to do that. And so she did. She totally gave that to God. And then she turned that hatred around and she began to serve those Japanese POWs. And so this really, this story really impacted Fujita. You can only imagine that. How in, how in the world can somebody forgive uh, like that? Uh, in fact, <clears throat> um, here's what Fujita said in his 
uh, autobiography. He said it was a beautiful story, but I could not understand such enemy-forgiving love. Where did man find such love? I had never heard of people returning good for evil. I desired all the more to discover the source of this power that could remove hatred from the hearts of people and change them into friendly, loving individuals. Only when I found that answer could I write a satisfactory conclusion to my book, No More Pearl Harbors. It wasn't long after that that Fujita uh, was in the subway station uh, there in Japan, and there was a young man that handed him a gospel track, and in this gospel track, it had the story of American soldier, Sergeant DeShazer. DeShazer. All these funny names. But this is amazing to me. And I, I can only imagine how, uh, how just uh, much this gripped Fujita because he was on the other side of this. DeShazer, he was a soldier at Pearl Harbor when Fujita attacked. In fact, he said he was, he was cutting up potatoes for the lunch meal and then the sirens went off and then it was on after that. And he... He was so enraged at all of his comrades that had died, and he was so mad. He, he went into special training. He signed up to be on the front lines. He was invo- heavily involved with the war. He hated the Japanese. And then he got captured by the Japanese as a POW. And, of course, he, he wasn't treated well, and he hated him even more for that. But during that time, one of those soldiers he was locked up with had a Bible, and they would pass it around and take turns reading it. <laughs> and he got over there to the Gospels, and he saw the forgiveness of Christ, and and how he had forgiven his murderers. And it just smote his heart, and he got saved right there in the prison. And he told God, he said, God, he said, if you get me out of here and you get me back to America, he said, I'm going to learn Japanese. And he said, I'm going to come back here as a missionary. (laughs) That's exactly what he did. And he talked about his love for the Japanese people. And as a soldier, this really touched Fujita. And here's what Fujita said when he read that story. He said, when I had finished reading Sergeant DeShazer's story, I became more ashamed than ever of my own revengeful spirit. If a Bible could change his life, it might change mine. So I bought a Bible for myself. And when he went out and got that Bible, he he just flipped to the first book he came to, which just so happened to be the Gospel of Luke. And here's what Fujita said about that when he was reading Luke. He said... There I faced the scene of the crucifixion of Christ. I read the words of Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prayed for the very soldiers who were about to thrust his side with a spear. And here was the source of this miracle of love that can forgive enemies. And suddenly I could understand the story of the American girl whose parents had been slain. Their prayer must have been the prayer so of Christ. Surely they must have asked God to forgive those who are about to decapitate them. The girl's love for the Japanese must be the answer to the prayer of her parents. This too could explain the transformation in Sergeant DeShazer's life. I am not ashamed to say that my eyes fill with tears and immediately I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) He found it, didn't he? The gospel of Christ is the reference point for the forgiveness of others. He prayed for the forgiveness of the ones who were beating and mocking Him and nailed Him to a cross. So how could we ever not forgive others? You see, as this hateful, vengeful soldier in World War II, 
He sought for peace and the source and the meaning and the reason for forgiveness. And for Fujita, it came back to one word, and that was Christ. He said, this is that love. This is that love. Fujita ended up becoming a missionary uh, to the Japanese. Came to America for several months to train. Quite an amazing story. Um, In fact, I, I actually found this story in one of MacArthur's commentaries and it touched me so much, I actually bought the, his autobiography yesterday. He's, he's written a book called From Pearl Harbor to Calvary. It's only about 50 pages long. I read it in one sitting, but man, it was powerful. And um, that's where it is. That's where it's at. But in closing, and I'm, I'm done, we need to forgive past hurt, and we need to have a ready mind to forgive others. Now think about this. I'm, I'll say this, I'm done. When it comes to the forgiveness of others, we need to keep two things in mind. We need to forgive those in the past that have offended us. And we need to have a ready mindset to forgive others in the future that are going to offend us. You see, if we have the mindset of, I'm going to forgive you and give you grace, and you're not going to steal my joy, it makes a big difference when those things come, when offenses come. And let, let us be like Sir Thomas More. This is another thing that really touched me. Thomas More uh, was a servant to King Henry VIII. And of course, Henry VIII was a maniac. And he ended up uh, executing, he martyred uh, Sir Thomas More. And right before uh, Thomas More was executed, here's what he said to his killers. Man, this is amazing. He said, As the blessed apostle Paul consented unto the death of St. Stephen and kept their clothes that stoned him to death, and yet now they are both holy saints in heaven and shall continue their friends forevermore. So I verily trust, and shall therefore right heartily pray, that though your lordships have now here in earth been judges to my condemnation, we may yet hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting foundation. Thomas More looked his killers in the eye and said, We'll pray for you all, that just like Paul and Stephen are friends in heaven, though Paul had Stephen executed. I, I pray that even though you're killing me today, that God will have mercy on you and we can be friends in heaven. You've got to have a lot of grace to do that. But then again, we have the greatest example, don't we? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is that you today? Forgiveness is the heart of the gospel. But are we living a gospel-driven life? Are you harboring hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart? Maybe today you're not even saved. You don't even know the forgiveness of Christ that Fujita came to find. You just repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Forsake your own good works and your own uh, thoughts of your own good. He'll save you. And you can be brought in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ.